you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. What's up, everybody? This is Charles Woodson, man, and you are listening to the Huddle and Flow Podcast. And we're back with another episode of the Huddle and Flow podcast brought to you by Intuit, the proud makers of QuickBooks, Mint, and TurboTax. I'm Steve White with my dude Jim Trotter, two-thirds of the Howard University mob, our man Thomas Warren on the ones and the twos. Producing this, he's the final piece of the puzzle. And Jim, we've got a really cool pod today because we've got Demora Smith, the executive director of the NFLPA, and J.C. Treader, the president of the NFLPA, hanging out with us today and I think it's I'm so glad you know you were able to to kind of swing them to come on especially after the ESPN article last week which kind of really painted a picture of Demore Smith being co-opted by the NFL saying you know he cut favorable deals for the league and its owners and you know we're going to ask D about this because you know that was a, that was something that really challenged you know his leadership and character and and, and his his means about going about his business so I'm glad again we we're able to get him on talk to talk to him about this yeah look i mean there are owners who do feel that way but my thing is if you feel that way put your name on it you know teams always ask players don't speak anonymously put your name on it well if you're a billionaire owner and you have something to say like that where you know uh, you talk about you should build a statue for demoris because he's been so good for the owners right put your name on it because to me otherwise that's, that's just a cheap shot so, um, and again, I'm not, I'm, all I'm saying here is that you're entitled to your opinion. If you believe that, you know, or even if you say the facts show that, just put your name on it if you're going to say it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a hell of a, of, a, of, a, of a turnabout, too, because for years we heard all he wants to do is box, right? All he wants to do is litigate and box and this and that. And now all of a sudden, you know, he's, uh, he's part of the process. Uh, very interesting. A very good article uh, by Don Vanatta and Seth Wickersham. Uh, very good reporters. You know, they, they've done a lot Excellent. of these things, a lot of these things before. Jim, you know, all sorts of things, you know, we, we, we need to hit on the 17 game season. It looks like it's going to be here, you know, with a three game preseason. It's going to change the schedule. It's going to change, you know, we'll, we'll see if it changes the size of practice squads. I really hope they do keep in the fact that players who are placed on IR can come back three weeks later. I think that really helped teams sustain their roster. And some of these teams get better towards the end of the regular season. Again, these are some of the topics we'll try and broach when we get J.C. and uh, Demore Smith on. Yeah, you know, there's so many things to talk about. There was dealing with the um, pandemic this season, getting through an entire season, which I'm one of those people who didn't think or was very skeptical that the league could get through an entire season without missing games or having postponements um, in terms of full weeks. So uh, there's that to talk about. There's also an upcoming um, NFLPA election next year uh, where DeMorris will be up for re-election. Is he going to run? Is he not going to run? Will he run unopposed? Um, and then there, you know, the interesting idea that J.C. Treader um, 
suggested back in December, I believe it was, about, look, we have proven this year that you don't need those on-field workouts in the offseason, so why are we doing them? And would like to see some changes to the offseason program, which have to be collectively bargained. So there's a lot of things to talk about with these guys or hear from these guys on. And um, a tasty, the other thing I found really interesting, if you want to jump in on it, is just the fact that we were able to get the executive director of the NFLPA on our podcast before we could get the NFL commissioner on our podcast. And we've been trying to get the commissioner since September. I found that interesting as well. Yep, there's been a standing there's been a standing and open invitation for league leadership to join us on the Huddle and Flow since we launched. But until then, let's get to the executive director of the NFLPA and the president of the NFLPA, Demore Smith and JC Treader. All right, Jim, this is a uh, just so excited for this. You know, our, our special guests now are joining us. You got JC Treader, president of the NFLPA, and DeMore Smith, the executive director of the NFLPA. Gentlemen, thanks for joining Jim and I here on the Huddle and Flow podcast. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having us. Oh, absolutely. So, so D, we want we want to get we got to get to you first. We're gonna we're gonna go get this out of the way. Yeah, and, and that ESPN uh, article. That came out last week. We're not. We can't unpack all of it here. But nor do we I, I want think, to. <laughs> yeah, correct, correct. Um, but just you know, the overall gist that it tries to at least lay out here in this very lengthy piece by Don Vanetta and Seth Wickersham is that there is not as much faith in your leadership and doing what's best for the players. Uh, as there once was in terms of, you know, adding the 17th or 18th game, some of the negotiations that took place for the CBA. What is kind of your response to some of the things laid out here, especially the overall narrative that it tries to show? I I think that's where I would start. Um, um, Well, first, actually, let me start one giant step back. Thanks for having me on your show. Um, uh, But to to pick up on the question, I, I think the only place where I would begin and end talking about the article today is um, it, 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 it seemed to want to create a certain narrative. Um, and um, I, I think when people, uh, people are certainly entitled to their, their own opinions. I'm not sure anybody's entitled to their own facts. Um, the narrative, it seemed to me was, was more um, heavy on opinion um, and, and certainly relying on a lot of people that they chose to, to keep anonymous. Um, but my takeaway from it is pretty simple. Um, you know, Jim, you know, we, we probably met the first couple weeks after I was elected in this job back in 2009. You know how I see the world. Um, I rely on the, the facts. Uh, my job is to do the best uh, I can for the players um, those things result in things like collective bargaining agreements and and things that um, make the lives of our players better um, and their working conditions better and their wages better. Um, and when it comes to people who have you know certain agendas about creating certain narratives, I, I tend to just stay in the facts. You know, D, what really blew me away in, in reading that piece and listening to the podcast was, yes, these owners were given the blanket of anonymity, but I couldn't understand why they would come out and say some of the things now. Um, for instance, you know, if we could, every owner would build a statue to D outside their stadiums. That's how good he's been for our business. You deal with these men on a regular. Um, what are your thoughts on why they would come out now at this time and make public statements like that? Well, I, I mean, look, I, I always come back to, um, I, I guess, one big takeaway is uh, apparently having a billion dollars doesn't buy you a whole heck of a lot of courage because you, you still want to stay into the, the, the sidelines and into the shadows. That's that's number one. But number two, you know, you and I talk about history a lot. Um, these were the same group of people who said the exact same thing about Gene Upshaw after the, the 2006 deal. Right. Um my job is not to crawl into their brains and try to figure out um, their motives. 
again, going back, my job is to do the best that I can on behalf of the players um, to, to come up with concrete, tangible gains. Um, if, if somebody wants to write an article where they spend, you know, just as much time talking about the, the rumors and the opinions that uh, as they're going to talk about facts, I, I can't control that. Um, and, and frankly, don't care about controlling that. My job is to talk to the players. I answer to them. Um, you know, that said, am I, am I sensitive to, to sort of coded language and, and the desire to build a caricature that, that some people choose to do at times? Of course I am. I walk into a room every day uh, when I'm negotiating with owners and, and let's just say everybody on one side of the table looks one way and typically people who look on our side of the table look a little bit differently. Um, for me, it's about making sure that I'm answerable to, to the membership. Um, and that's where this job begins and ends. The timing is kind of interesting as well, knowing that you're up for re-election in September. Um, do you think that in any way this will have any impact on that? And do you expect at this time to run unopposed as you did last time? Well, um, I, again, the, the players make the decisions of, of how long I have this job. Uh, again, I, I, you brought up the timing of these articles. They tend to, they tend to kind of follow a little bit of a pattern. Um, but you know what, Jim, I, at the end of the day, I, I'm blessed to have a great job. Um, I love it. I, I love the battles. Um, when I came into this job as sort of the outsider in 2009, it was the, the caricature was it's a guy from the outside who doesn't know anything about football. Um, after that, it became the guy who just likes to fight too much. He doesn't build relationships. Um, all he wants to do is litigate. Um, he doesn't have a good relationship with with the owners. He doesn't have a good relationship with uh, Roger Goodell. And now we're at a point where, okay, he's got too good of a relationship with everybody. He's too close to Roger Goodell. Well, um, all three of those things can't be true. Um, I don't spend a whole heck of a lot of time, uh, trying to figure out what everybody's motivation is. Um, my job is just to, to do the best I can for the players. And I'm going to do that. JC, let's yes, turn to you. Yeah. You're a player. What what is the player membership feelings about union leadership? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if we start with with this ESPN article, I think it breaks down into three categories. The first one is like D touched on the the anonymous quotes, and I, I think most uh, most players and, and most men look at you know their word and and who they are, and if they have something to say, they're gonna they're gonna say it and they're gonna put their name behind it. And I don't put much, put much stock um, in people who don't want to do that, uh, and I'm, I don't really want to spend too much time arguing with shadows. Uh, and, and that's kind of the, the first part of that article. The second um, I see is more of a subjective part of the piece. And that's when you start talking about the 2011 deal, the 2020 deal of who won the negotiations. And that is a subjective decision because as everybody knows, uh, a CBA is about uh, on the low side, 500 compromises built into one document. So to um, to try to decide who the winner is probably isn't the easiest. And there's a gray area if you're uh, as in you know real life, if you're a one issue voter. Yeah, I guess you can determine the, the winner if you're looking at one issue and who got the best side of it. But the deal is way different than just um, winners and losers, as we saw with, you know, even if you look at revenue, which was kind of glanced over in the piece, you know, we weren't getting high 50s percent of revenue originally because the language didn't provide us that. They were able to take the money before we got our percentage. Um, so even just looking at the, you know, the, the numbers off the top, it doesn't paint the whole story. Um, the important parts are the language and the process and all the things that go into how to get to those answers inside the CBA, because that's how you dictate every decision that's made in that CBA agreement. Um, the last then goes to what D said, the facts. And, and for the most part, um, the, the thing that I think got players the most upset was that the facts were um, construed in a way of to create conspiracy. And um, what I immediately tasked our group with is let's just provide the facts to our, our membership and our leadership. And, and that's how we're going to make decisions. That's how we're going to look at things, just through facts, not through narratives not through conspiracy. I mean, you, you bring up the, 
Um, if you look at the Drew Brees part of the article, uh, taking the idea um, that a star quarterback at the height of his career makes a lot of money off the field as a star quarterback through licensing isn't that scandalous. But when you want to write it in a way that tries to make it scandalous, it then you know destroys the credibility of anything else. And that's why everything is just let's look at the facts. Let's look at what we have and let's look at this you know clearly. But lastly, you know, I feel like I try to make myself as available as possible to answer any questions, to talk to whoever wants to talk. Um, and, and I see a problem that there was no effort made to talk to me as the president of the union um, to ask any questions or discuss any of the issues either. So I, I think that's the main issue. And again, um, we're going to talk to our membership and our leadership about it. And, and we're just going to present the facts and we're going to have an open discussion with them. And um, I think we'll be all the better for it. But JC, in, in the fact that in essence, you guys have gotten two CBAs done in the last couple of years, right? Because you guys had to renegotiate some stuff this year with the COVID uh, protocols and things like that. Where do you think the relationship is? I mean, because, you know, we saw some of the conversations at the Super Bowl between D and Roger. You were involved in some of that. To me, it seems as healthy um, as it possibly could be in terms of a player's association and the league and trying to navigate through COVID and trying to move things forward uh, for the next 10 years. But that's just an outside perspective. You know, as Jim, you know, asked you earlier, how might the players feel about this since they were the ones, even though it was only by 60 votes, who voted to ratify the initial CBA and then to go along with some of the other changes that had to be made based on what happened this year? Yeah, it's um, I think we had to work together this year for there to be a season. The two sides had to um, work together in a sense to make the decisions um, in the best interest of the, the players and health and safety in order for this season to even happen. So, of course, we had to work together. I think what doesn't get shown publicly are the hours of phone calls and fights and arguments and negotiations that go into all of those decisions. Um, I think we we worked well together, but. I would lie to you if I was if I said that that every conversation we had about tough decisions was was easy and rosy. And one side just said, yeah, sure, that sounds great. Uh, that, that's that's not how the process works. Um, so, yeah, we worked well together. But um, those calls for, for the EC members and the reps who were a part of them, um, those are contentious, difficult calls um, trying to get the best deal and the best protections the players need. Dee, what, what, as you look back on the 2020 season and the unprecedented nature of it, what stands out to you most in terms of maybe behind the scenes that we don't know about in getting through a season, a COVID-19 season, and making it happen? I, I think it would be that. Um, you know, early on, um, you know, a lot of credit to, to, to JC. He, you know, we, we, we're negotiating a deal um, uh, ratifying a deal at, at a time when when he's elected president, um, he's president for when that deal gets ratified, and and we roll over literally the next day into COVID, and and the first conversation that he and I you know had about this uh, because he had done his own research, we both realized anybody could anybody could start the season to pick up on your question. It was how do we get through it. Um, and whether we could finish it. I mean, we we were in um, we were in Broward County, Florida, for rep meeting that year um, at a time when March Madness shut down. The NBA had shut down. Um, I think baseball was on its way <laughs> to to not to not making it through. So it it wasn't. I, I think behind the scenes, the most important story was that. Um, the, the union and its leadership made an early decision that the goal wasn't to start the season. The goal was to get through the season. Um, and, and that meant um, we had to have daily testing all through this season. And, and, you know, to something that JC pointed out, those were not friendly conversations with the league at the beginning. Um, not having preseason games was not an easy agreement. Why was it? Why would there be an issue on daily testing in the beginning? Well, early on, when we started looking at the models for how the the the, the virus spread, 
Um, and it, it's, you know, especially it's our not factor. Once you start to realize just how contagious this is, any model that contemplated an unchecked spread meant that there was no way we would get through a season. Um, the only way that, that our experts told us that we could get through the season was having daily testing. The league did not want to test every day at the beginning of this. They just simply didn't want to do it. You can ask them why. I'm sure it had a little bit to do with money. But um, the decisions to change the offseason, to not have a full preseason, to engage in daily testing, and then uh, the myriad of other things that we uh, plugged into these protocols, none of those or virtually all of those um, weren't, weren't things that we had quick agreement with with the National Football League. That's just a fact. So um, the, the conversation quickly turned to you can make a decision that you may want to test um, two days a week, three days a week, but there was literally no model that demonstrated a likelihood of success that didn't include daily testing and aggressive contact tracing. Um, and, and probably that was the first early battle, you know, recalling JC, that was probably the first big skirmish that we had. Um, and, and look, I, I, I get it, but when we looked at, other leagues and and what other schools were trying to do to manage their season, um, you could start the season w w without daily testing, but there was no scenario in our minds of how we actually complete a season without daily testing. Just real quick, do you foresee daily testing going into next season? Well, I I, I think that's that's a good question. Uh, the the first question is where do we think the country will be? Um, with respect to COVID uh, during a time that we would start our off season um, and training camp and regular season. Um, I, I think unless there is a extremely high likelihood that everyone um, in the country would be vaccinated to reach the 85% that we need for herd immunity, um, unless we think that that's going to occur, or we will arrive there by, um, by by the beginning of the season, I think daily testing is probably something that we will at least start the season with this year. JC, was was there a point during the 2020 season where you questioned whether or not you all would get through it? <laughs> oh, I mean, it wasn't a perfect season. Uh, we we had our issues, um, but what we did have was we we had a focus on following the science and, and making decisions through that lens. So even when, you know, the first, I think, big hiccup is obviously the, the Tennessee situation. Um, but we had such a laser focus on, you know, what do we need to do to keep people safe and make decisions through solely that lens? Um, I always felt that we were going to come to the right answer. And I think for the most part, we did come to the right answer. Uh, and it, like I said, it wasn't wasn't perfect. We had to move a handful of games. Um, but to start the year, if you if you took a, an honest poll of, um, you know, everybody in the NFL community, media, coaches, staffs, players on, on whether we were going to get through, you know, 16 games, the playoffs and finish with a Super Bowl on time. I don't think that number is very high of people uh, saying yes to that. But, you know, in the end. Uh, I think the goalposts moved a little bit where all of a sudden it became, but you guys did move those, you know, three to five games. So it wasn't a success, right? Uh, I think being the first league um, to have a non-bubbled um, full COVID season uh, is a tremendous accomplishment. And it, it really goes to um, our player leadership and leading those discussions and making sure to focus on the right issues uh, then it goes to everybody who walked in that building. There needed to be as close to 100% compliance to all of our protocols, all of our rules uh, at all times for it to work. Uh, and, and like Dee talked about with how contagious this virus is, that was something we were told very early from other sports leagues that had their problems was if this gets in the building, it's going to be a, a disaster. And, and there was so much focus on, first off, the daily testing and the PPE of making sure you try to control that transmission and keep it out of the building. 
And then after that, that's why the, the contact tracing was so important and crucial because you needed to be able to figure out where this virus is moving to next. And then when we made that shift to the high risk close contacts where you're pulling, you know, people who are at most susceptible to catching the disease based off of their interactions, I think that assured us that we were going to be safe moving forward uh, because it's the, the best way to avoid that rolling transmission that we saw early on of, you know, a case popping up and then another case a week later and then two cases and kind of that snowball effect. I'm curious as, as union president, uh, what you've heard from membership about just how difficult it was to get through this season. For instance, we've talked to players individually who talk about isolating and being away from family and those sorts of things and how unusual and how difficult it was. Um, can you speak to as union president what you've heard from membership in terms of uh, just how difficult that was that maybe we on the outside don't understand or don't know? Yeah, it, it definitely was. It definitely was hard. Again, this this disease itself kind of just grinds you and and just puts you in a really difficult situation. And, and I can speak to my own situation. I mean, we we have a, a baby daughter born in December in the middle of the season, and we couldn't have family visit uh, in, in Sear until we were we were done because we couldn't risk um, potentially being exposed and then br me bringing that virus into the locker room. And, and, and that stuff is is isolating. You know, you not wanting to get sick and, and infect your teammates. Uh, and, and then the same way of you not wanting to get sick at work and potentially bring it to somebody in your in your household or in your family if they're visiting. And that's that's tough. You have to, you had to make a lot of difficult decisions of um, the season is how I was, I've always looked at it as the, the most social time for football players because everyone wants to come to games. Everyone wants to see you. Everyone wants to be there. And this season was different where a lot of guys didn't have that interaction that they look forward to every season of running out to fans and their families in the stands uh, th that definitely, that definitely wore on guys and was, and was difficult. And, and that's why, the players deserve so much credit for even through those difficult times, continuing to make the right decisions for the betterment of their teammates and everybody in that building. Um, that, that, that's why they deserve so much credit. How close did we come to not having football at all this year? Um, if, if we look at this as whether or not the league was going to accept the 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 players positions about what it took to get through the season if if you just frame it up as those two big things if if the league would not have taken the union's positions on all of these things i doubt we would have been able to make it through a season I, i'd go so far as to say highly unlikely um because there were there were probably four or five fail-safe things that that if they weren't agreed to or they weren't handled the right way, given what JC said about what our experts were telling us, we would not have been able to stop the spread of an infection quickly enough to ensure that football would happen the next week. Um, I, I think because we made some decisions very early, we never got to that point of, of we, we never got to that fail safe of non-containment. Um, and to JC's point, you know, did we have some brush fires? Yes. Baltimore was a perfect example. I think we, right. the game was scheduled for, for either a Saturday or a Sunday. I can't really remember, but we ended up pushing that game, you know, a few days. Multiple multiple times. The reason we had to push it was because we were unable to contain the outbreak. We, we learned later on that the reason we couldn't contain the outbreak was because uh, a strength and conditioning coach wasn't wearing his tracking device and therefore the system broke down. Right. But imagine if we would have had a scenario where everybody wasn't mandated to wear a tracer or a system where we were only testing every two days. I don't know. We would have never been able to contain that to a point where it was safe to play the game, but even beyond the game, um, that would have led to a potential outbreak in other places. And, and then you reach a certain point where 
there's just too much of an outbreak for you to control. We never got there. Um, and, and we never got there because um, I think we made some really good decisions, staked out some ground very early, um, you know, uh, at, at the risk of, of bursting into flames. Uh, the, the league did a great job of, of, um, of mandating testing. I thought they did a great job of, of um, issuing punishments for um, protocol violations. And, and, and frankly, that's out of our control, but they did that. Um, and I also thought that there was a tremendous amount of discipline by our players. I wanted to ask this to follow up on this with JC. You wrote a really fascinating letter that posted on the NFLPA website. I think it was in December about um, the changes to the offseason program because of COVID and what impact that would have going forward. And to read it just a little bit. You said, I believe the changes impl implemented this season have demonstrated that we can put an entertaining product out on the field while further reducing wear and tear on our players' bodies. Sloppy play would usually be evident with low scoring games, a high number of penalties and more missed tackles. All things that have historically been attributed to insufficient practice time to hone our fundamentals. But we have seen the exact opposite this year with points per game at an all time high, a decreased number of penalties and even fewer missed tackles compared to last year. You went on to say there is no reason for us ever to return to the previous offseason program. So you stated your desire. What's the likelihood that we are going to have changes going forward? And, and that's for you and D both to speak to based on what you've said there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we start with looking forward to this year. We're still dealing with COVID. So this offseason, we are still dealing with the issues that we were dealing with last year, where we are as, as a country and, and how to handle this offseason. Um, beyond that, too, though, um, I think the, the benefit of COVID was it forced everyone to do things differently. And it forced us to prepare different, differently. And, and we proved we could prepare differently. And as in any big uh, business I would say change isn't always their strong suit. And there's always that fear of change that uh, a simple adjustment could crash the whole thing down. And uh, you saw it with the same thing with two-a-days during the 2011 CBA. There was this push that you can't get rid of two-a-day practices. The guys need it. They won't be ready to play if they don't practice twice a day, which looking back, it sounds crazy to think that way. But when you only have something done a certain way for a long time, it just gets ingrained in your mind that that is what it takes to be ready. And, and what COVID gave us was an opportunity to do things differently. And it proved that we could. And um, we had guys who didn't have any OTAs. We adjusted training camp to follow the science again of how do we ramp our bodies up to be best prepared to play a season. That was our focus. And that's why we had to do away with the preseason game because we needed to focus on the acclimation period before going out and playing. And it, it just showed that it can be done without, you know, a random nine weeks in the off season um, in shorts and a t-shirt. And, and it just doesn't make sense to go back to what we always did solely because we always did it. And if this year proved that there can be something better, well, let's do something better. And if our performance historically was here and we had, a, you know, during a 10 week offseason program and we had a zero week offseason program and our performance was at worst equal, if not better, by what I said, then clearly there's no real value add to a program that's not providing any benefit when it comes to performance. So that's something we're dealing with now is figuring out how to continue to follow the science and, and make a program that is a value add. will help our young players. We'll help our veteran players. We'll help the teams perform. And, and that should be the focus, not just, well, now that COVID might be out of the woods, we might be out of the woods with COVID. Let's just fall back on what we always did because we always did it. We, we can't think that way. And it would be a shame to think that way after everything we've been through this year. So, well, so this, this would have to be collectively bargained, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Changes? We, we, yeah, we'll definitely have to talk to the NFL about it. But I think uh, in the end, we should be relying on medical experts to help shape this discussion on how best to move forward. You now, health and safety always gets kind of pushed into a player issue. 
but I would argue it's you know a team issue, uh, uh, owner issue, a fan issue, because those three groups also want their players healthy and, and ready to play at the top of their abilities. Uh, so it, it would be best for everybody to focus on how to keep our guys healthy long term. I want to ask you about the NFL hiring practices, specifically as it relates to head coaches. Over the last four cycles, we've had 27 openings, I believe, and only three have gone to black men. Um, What is the role or what role can players or the union play in terms of trying to level this playing field and creating real opportunities for men of color who have earned through their hard work, should have earned an opportunity um, to climb the professional ladder, and they're not getting that opportunity. Yeah, I, I think that we there is an opportunity to impact the process, um, and um, the the league has asked for our help. Um, they're they're going to get our help. They may not want it once we give it to them, but we're they're going to get it since they asked for it. But but Jim, going back in history uh, again. Um, we know that there was something called the Rooney rule and we should just accept the fact that it didn't work um, because it created a, a, a rule that had really no punishment for when it wasn't followed. And it created an expectation or a goal that as your stat presented wasn't achieved. Right. So it seems to me that where we can help is how do we make for a better process? Um, There needs to be more transparency in the way in which teams interview, um, grade, and and make hiring decisions. Right now, there there isn't. Um, There's barriers to, to entry. If you need to get the permission of your team owner in order to even apply for another position, that's a barrier to entry. Um, There has to be increased accountability. There isn't a a person at every NFL team or at the league office who has the title of of chief officer for diversity um, and and inclusion. There just simply isn't. So as a result, at the end of of one of these cycles, um, there isn't a person who, who is accountable. Um, everybody on this, on this podcast knows how the league works. It, it is a, it is a disassembled group of 31 fiefdoms, right? It has a commissioner, um, who's got the title, but perhaps a person who doesn't have the ability to actually make teams do the right thing. So at the end of the day, you have 32 fiefdoms you might have a policy that's developed at the National Football League, but there's clearly no accountability for achieving the ends, right? Well, Dee, let me say this, though, in, in terms of <laughs> knowing our history. No, I mean, look, yeah. if we're being frank here, we're talking about knowing our history. It was back in, in the early 2000s, 2000, 2001, where there was the threat of litigation over discrimination as it related yeah. to head coaching um, right. practices that created, in essence, the Rooney Rule. Right. And it was over the next decade that we had incremental improvements to where I think we had seven or eight minority head coaches. And then as they got fired, they were never really replaced. Right. Um, at the same level, you know, so to speak, to where at one point we were down to two, I believe. So I, I guess what I'm wondering is when you have a system where the league essentially tried to bribe teams to hire black coaches by saying, we'll give you extra draft picks. Um, Anytime you have to incentivize a process to do something that's right, it's already wrong, is what I believe. And so so I guess what I'm asking is, are we at the point now where we're back to square one, where really the threat of litigation is the only thing that's going to create change here? Well, Jim, if you're threatening litigation, you just want to fight with people and you just want to litigate and you should probably be. You've never with... heard that before. You've I've never, never heard that before. Yeah, I mean, what, would, what would that be like? Um, perhaps if they built a statue of you. So, no, look, I mean, I think I think that the history of the Rooney rule um, is one. I hate that we, can I just say I hate that we bring up Rooney rule? Because it has 
has nothing to do with this. It well, really I doesn't. Well, the only reason I mention it is I, I think it's a Rooney suggestion, right? It's not a it's not a Rooney rule. It's a suggestion. But the history of it was in response to litigation, right? right. And it was simply to slow down the process to say, if you slow down and you interview more diverse candidates, the likelihood is, is greater that you're going to, or a diverse candidate will have an opportunity to get the well, job. Right. Or, or in its most essential terms, it was a response to a threat. No question. Right. So it seems to me that the, the way you move forward in anything, because a lot of things have not worked, um, um, the, there is no threat. There is no consequence. Um, Gene created the, um, the, the, the Coaches Association in the early 2000s with the idea of helping assistant coaches unionize. I inherited that. Um, no assistant coaches wanted to unionize whatsoever. Um, we stopped funding that organization because they didn't want to unionize to in order to increase their, increase their own power. Um, groups, there's groups out there um, that, that we know the names of that kind of lend themselves to increasing diversity in the National Football League. No one can say that those things have helped. Um, it only seems to me that what helps the league move forward is concrete and, and real threats of things making changes. And, and that's why I think um, coming up with, with recommendations to the league um, from the union are, are going to be important. I in no way, shape, or, or, or form think that it's going to be a magical switch that flips um, and we reach you know racial um, or, or gender nirvana in the National Football League, we're not going to do that. But until there is someone who has a job um, to achieve a goal, and they're going to be held accountable if they don't reach that goal, until we have a transparent and accountable process, history has taught us that we can't hope for anything more than what we get. Yeah, but now you're talking about affirmative action, D. Oh, well. That's yeah. all you're doing. Well, uh, I, I, you know, and then somebody's going to mention the word quotas and somehow. Exactly. That. No, what I'm talking about is if gender, racial, and class inclusiveness is something that we all actually believe is good for our country um, and good for our organizations, how do we actually set up a process to achieve it? And And right now, we don't have that process. JC, I'm not. I'm going to let you in on that too. You're a player. Do players discuss this issue? And if so, what role do you think they can play in trying to create positive change? Yeah, I mean, they definitely talk about it, especially as we've seen it trend in the wrong direction, as you as you talked about. And uh, it's been an issue that has continued to get brought up more and more. I know our EC uh, has had long discussions about what we can do. Uh, to better level the playing field and uh, and create change. Uh, I think in the end, though, what it comes down to is those 32 decision makers uh, being okay with hiring someone that doesn't look like that. I mean, and that's what it in the end comes down to is um, them making that decision. And right now, I think they're not making that decision. And, and we see it all across the country, it's not just football players. You can look at the you know, Fortune 500 CEO list and you can see that those decisions aren't usually made that way. And, and, and that's what's going to it's going to come down to accountability of those decision makers to make that conscious decision. The other thing here, too, and, and I know the NFLPA has talked about this is nepotism. I mean, when you look at it, 10 of the 32 head coaches were all related to a former NFL coach. Um, and I think the number, the data I got from the league last week was there are 73 um, coaches in the NFL who are sons or related to a former NFL coach, I should say. And of those 73, 55 are white. So you're talking about only 18 um, minorities who are related to a former NFL coach. So how do you deal with the nepotism issue in the NFL? Well, I mean, you and I, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, we're talking about affirmative action. Right. Isn't nepotism just affirmative action another way? Right? Absolutely. It's a deliberateness 
to hire somebody that you're related to. So, you know, look, I mean, we this offseason, we had the only owner of color hire a guy who had a history of disparaging people of color. Well, okay. I mean, the one thing we know is that simply by increasing the diversity among ownership doesn't trickle down to making wise and smart decisions about diversity and inclusiveness. In the end, it seems to me all we would want is the same deliberateness that is employed um, to to use your stats for 10 of the 32 head coaches and and 75 people who are in the business of coaches. The, the, The same deliberateness that has led us to that should be a level of deliberateness um, that should be employed to make us more diverse and more inclusive. It's a simple. I just, yeah, I just keep coming back to this, Steve, when we talk about fairness. Do blind resumes. And if you put up blind resumes at times, people want to always say, well, why shouldn't owners hire the most qualified people? To which I always say, I agree with you a thousand percent. Hire the most qualified people regardless of color. Now let's put up blind resumes and you tell me which is more qualified. And I feel very comfortable saying if that's done, there are going to be occasions where a minority candidate is the more qualified based on that resume, but that person isn't being hired. Well, and and I agree with you 100%. The only thing I would say is whether it's blind resumes, reducing the the barriers to to entry, um, increasing the pipeline of people who are qualified to even submit a resume, All of those come down to accepting that there is a goal that you want to achieve and we are going to put in a transparent and accountable process that is likely to reach that goal. And until we get there, until we engage in that deliberateness, right, everything that we're going to be doing is just hoping. I'm going to get off my soapbox. I'll just say this and get off of it. Steve can, can go on to his next question after this. But we have four minority head coaches in the NFL today. They don't have one person of color on their staff as a coordinator. Why do they feel, and and, and some of them, if you talk privately to former minority head coaches, feel like they will be judged differently, that people think that they're just hiring their buddies if they hire um, um, coaches of color as coordinators. But white head coaches don't feel that same thing. Um, There's just something fundamentally wrong there. Um, and I and I always come back to this. If we won't hire our own, how do we expect anyone else to hire us? Well, now uh, I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> well, and, and look, we we with you and, and with Steve, I have always just tried to be extremely blunt in, in you know, in my career at times too blunt, um, maybe for some people. But what you're talking about um, is is systemic. Yes. And systemic in the sense of how people are hired, but it's also systemic in the way in which people of color feel like they are going to be judged in a different way or held accountable to a different standard, right? Absolutely. And so what we are trying to wrestle with now and fix um, is, is the results of that systemic nature of that. And, 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 it's not going to be fixed by one simple proposal. Sure as heck is not going to be fixed by somebody coming up with a new tweak of a rule. Um, I think engaging in a fair and blunt conversation about transparency and accountability is a necessary first step. All right, JC, change gears here uh, for both you guys, actually. We'll start with JC, 17 games. Um, it's been the conversation. It looks like it is going to happen, the 17-game regular season, the three-game preseason. Just your, your, you know, J.C., again, starting with you, your thoughts on the likelihood of this and, and players. You know, we, we've heard a lot of the disenchantment of, of expanding the regular season, but now it seems like 17 games is here. Everyone's kind of accepting it. Just kind of the thoughts on that, the health and safety issue, the revenue generating, kind of what you guys had to weigh in assessing those types of changes to the schedule. Yeah. I mean, I think the best way to look at it is in these last CBA negotiations, the, the owners um, bought the right to go to 17 games. 
Um, and, and it's their choice to make that decision now. Um, real, real quick, when you say bought the right, what exactly do you mean there? So in exchange for that 17th game, they're you know, in a negotiations, um, things get exchanged for that 17th game. And, and we receive things like increasing our minimum salaries. And, and like I said earlier about it, it's tough to, you know, completely tie one thing to the S and CBAs, but that was what they did not have the right to expand the schedule previously. And then they wanted the right to be able to expand it. So they had to give us things in order for us to accept it. And in the end, the players voted that what we got in return for that 17th game was enough to accept it. So at this point, it's now out of our hands. Um, they, we've, we've received the benefits from that 17th game, um, whether they go to it really or not, there are some, you know, kickers in there that, that change that, but that's really the only way to look at it is they purchased the right. And, and now it's, it's their decision on when to do it, if to do it, um, what the best decision is on, on how to make sure the, the season works the way they want it to. When you say kickers, what do you mean by that? Well, we have, I mean, D, you can probably best explain the, the media rights and, and sure. everything. Well, you know, one giant step back. Remember the 2006 deal gave the owners the right to go up to uh, 18, 19 games with, without uh, negotiating with the union. So one of the ways that we talk about buying the right, we took that right away from the unilateral right away from the owners in the 2011 deal. They bought the right to go to 17 games in, in, 20, in the 2021 deal. Um, we also structured um, the media deals in a way that if the, the deals reach a certain bogey of, of generating revenue, it increases our share of revenue going to the players. So the, the way the kickers work is we wanted to build a, um, a system where both sides benefited from A, being aggressive in the new TV deals, but also if we were gonna move to 17 games, we knew that that would come with increased media and we wanted um, an extra share of that media coming to players. I mean, sorry, media dollars coming to players. Oh, so any, any ever serious, I, I guess, got close to add, adding a second five when we talk about health and safety, was there ever, did that ever get serious? We're getting a second five week. Yeah, I'm sorry. We, we, sorry to cut you off, but, but we talked about it. That came up during, during bargaining a few times. The league has a lot of reasons that they pushed back on, on an extra bye week primarily of, of how it, it would impact um, playoffs and timing of, uh, of the Super Bowl. Um, because they look at a media window about uh, how to get the most revenue from a media window. Um, they didn't want to go to a, to an extra bye week, um, and that's where we are right now. One thing I wanted to be clear on, though, as of now, D, you guys are expecting this offseason to be under the same guidelines and protocols of last offseason. Is that correct? I think that'd be fair to say. I think that's where the country is with COVID um, right now. And, and we certainly do have some things that we have to collectively bargain um, because the thing, some of the things we did last year were only one year, um, one year deals. Um, but I think the frame of it is, is probably where we were last year. Okay. Um, secondly, just clearing up here, cleaning up, you will be running in September, correct? Um, actually I'm up in, uh, March of 22, the uh, executive committee, we have a process where they evaluate me in September and they're going to evaluate me in September. And your plan is to run in 22. Uh, well, my wife's not, not here yet. So I, I, why, don't I, why don't I talk to her first and uh, we'll, we'll deal with that. Hard, but, man. I don't want to I've told her since 2011 that I was going to leave the job the next year. So um, wh why don't I try to keep that streak going? I love my job and um, I, I dig working for the players. I serve at the pleasure of the players. Um, I don't, I don't have any intention on going anywhere anytime soon. All right. Well said. Well, JC Treader and Demore Smith, we thank you so much for joining us here on the huddle and flow. This was a very important and needed conversation. And, and again, we appreciate your frankness and your transparency and your honesty uh, and, and just, you know, wish you the best moving forward, gents. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you, guys. Steve, I want to thank 
J.C. Treader and Demore Smith for coming on. You know, I'd heard a lot about J.C. Treader. Don't know him personally, just in terms of what kind of guy he is, how focused he is on the job at hand, those sorts of things. And um, I think the union leadership is in the players are in good hands with J.C. because uh, he's looking out for the players and Demore's. You know, he is always going to come under fire. You know, anyone in that position is going to come under fire. I find it interesting now that people would say he's too close to the commissioner. That was the same thing they said about Gene Upshaw with Paul Tagliabue. And I was one of those people, you know, who said it's too chummy a relationship. And then I saw the acrimony between Demore Smith and Roger Goodell early on. I said, this isn't the way to go either. So it seems like you just can't satisfy people no matter what you do. And, it's, you know, it's funny because at the Super Bowl, I, I moderated Roger Goodell's annual news conference uh, to the reporters who were at hand and virtually. And then Demore Smith came came on a little bit later. They answered a couple questions together and they stood by and chatted. And I had people from both sides, from the PA and from the NFL, say this is the best that they've gotten along. Because we know it was, you know, you almost couldn't get them in the same room. It was it was that antagonistic. And I didn't see anything wrong with it. Again, I used the NBA and the NBPA example. I'm sure they have their their divergent missions and what they want to accomplish, but they found a way to work best for everyone to succeed. Not everyone's going to get what they want to get. It's going to get ugly at times. Um, But again, to see that there is sustained labor peace, we can say whatever we want about it as the fan, as the media member, as whatever. We know there's going to be stability for the next 10 years regardless of economic downturns, upturns, whatever, for this great game that we cover and we're fortunate to talk about all the time. So, I mean, I, I think that's a good thing. And despite the personality of what people want to say, Demore Smith is this, Roger Goodell is that. They're working together, again, for the, for the best interest of a whole lot of people. I'm telling you, particularly in this year or this past season where it was such a difficult time in this country where folks needed an outlet. And we can sit here and debate whether or not they should have played at all when you talk about player safety and the pandemic and everything else. But one thing we did see as DeMorris and JC talked about is they took every conceivable step to protect themselves if they were going to play, uh, including daily testing. So, um, yeah, I, I, (laughs) you know, we always say sports is like the great escape, if you will. And um, if ever there were a time we needed an escape uh, over the last year, Last fall was it. So um, props to the players, the league, the wives, the coaches, executives, employees for all taking this seriously, taking the right steps and protecting themselves and everyone else to get through a season. Absolutely. Well, Jim, another great podcast. Again, thanks to JC and Demore Smith for joining us next week. We're going to have Rams superstar cornerback Jalen Ramsey, you know, and uh, Jim, Jalen's got some opinions. No. You know what? Jalen? I mean, here's the thing, man. Follow him on social media. I mean, he's he doesn't just fire off like triggered stuff. It's like real thoughtful stuff. And he's had some real thoughtful stuff to say about the Deshaun Watson situation. So when we get him on, we're going to ask him about that. And I'm sure he's going to be absolutely fantastic. But until the end, until then, Jim, why don't you bring us home? Yeah, we thank you again for listening. We thank you for subscribing. Please leave us messages in terms of what you'd like to hear, who you'd like to hear from, what topics you would like addressed. That way, we can continue to give you more of what you're funking for. That's right. I want to thank Intuit, our sponsor. They are the proud makers of QuickBooks, TurboTax, and Mint. From my guy, Jim Trotter. Thomas Warren on the ones and twos. I'm Steve White. We are the Howard Mob, and we are out. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day. And smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. 
So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.